Part Two of Tacitus Agricola. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lini. Agricola by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodred. Part Two. Their strength is in infantry. Some tribes fight also with the chariot. The higher in rank is the charioteer. The dependents fight. They were once ruled by kings, but are now divided under chieftains into factions and parties. Our greatest advantage in coping with tribes so powerful is that they do not act in concern. Seldom is it that two or three states meet together to ward off a common danger. Thus, while they fight singly, all are conquered. Their sky is obscured by continual rain and cloud. Severity of cold is unknown. The days exceed in length those of our part of the world. The nights are bright, and in the extreme north so short that between sunlight and dawn you can perceive but a slight distinction. It is said that, if there are no clouds in the way, the splendor of the sun can be seen throughout the night, and that he does not rise and set, but only crosses the heavens. The truth is that the low shadow thrown from the flat extremities of the earth's surface does not raise the darkness to any height, and the night thus fails to reach the sky and stars. With the exception of the olive and vine, and plants which usually grow in warmer climates, the soil will yield, and even abundantly, all ordinary produce. It ripens indeed slowly, but is of rapid growth, the cause in each case being the same, namely, the excessive moisture of the soil and of the atmosphere. Britain contains gold and silver, and other metals as the prize of conquest. The ocean, too, produces pearls, but of a dusky and bluish hue. Some think that those who collect them have not the requisite skill, as in the Red Sea the living and breathing pearl is torn from the rocks, while in Britain they are gathered just as they are thrown up. I could myself more readily believe that the natural properties of the pearls are in fault than are keenest for gain. The Britons themselves bear cheerfully the conscription, the taxes, and the other burdens imposed on them by the empire, if there be no oppression. Of this they are impatient. They are reduced to subjection, not as yet to slavery. The deified Julius the very first Roman who entered Britain with an army, though by a successful engagement he struck terror into the inhabitants and gained possession of the coast, must be regarded as having indicated, rather than transmitted, the acquisition to future generations. Then came the civil wars, and the arms of our leaders were turned against their country, and even when there was peace, there was a long neglect of Britain. This... Augustus spoke of as policy, Tiberius as an inherited maxim. 
that Caius Caesar meditated an invasion of Britain is perfectly clear, but his purposes, rapidly formed, were easily changed, and his vast attempts on Germany had failed. Claudius was the first to renew the attempt, and conveyed over into the island some legions and auxiliaries, choosing Vespasian to share with him the campaign, whose approaching elevation had this beginning. Several tribes were subdued, and kings made prisoners, and destiny learned to know its favorite. Aulus Plautius was the first governor of consular rank, and Ostorius Scapula the next. Both were famous soldiers, and by degrees the nearest portions of Britain were brought into the condition of a province, and a colony of veterans was also introduced. Some of the states were given to King Cogidumnus, who lived down to our day a most faithful ally. So was maintained the ancient and long-recognized practice of the Roman people, which seeks to secure among the instruments of dominion even kings themselves. Soon after, Didius Gallus consolidated the conquests of his predecessors, and advanced a very few positions into parts more remote, to gain the credit of having enlarged the sphere of government. Didius was succeeded by Varanius, who died within the year. Then Suetonius Paulinus enjoyed success for two years. He subdued several tribes, and strengthened our military posts. Thus encouraged, he made an attempt on the island of Mona, as a place from which the rebels drew reinforcements, but in doing this he left his rear open to attack. Relieved from apprehension by the legate's absence, the Britons dwelt much among themselves on the miseries of subjection, compared their wrongs, and exaggerated them in the discussion. "'All we get by patience,' they said, is that heavier demands are exacted from us, as from men who will readily submit. A single king once ruled us, now two are set over us, a legate to tyrannize over our lives, a procurator to tyrannize over our property. Their quarrels and their harmony are alike ruinous to their subjects. The centurions of the one, the slaves of the other, combine violence with insult. Nothing is now safe from their avarice, nothing from their lust. In war, it is the strong who plunders. Now, it is for the most part by cowards and poltroons that our homes are rifled, our children torn from us, the conscription enforced, as though it were for our country alone that we could not die. For, after all, what a mere handful of soldiers has crossed over, if we Britons look at our own numbers. Germany did thus shake off the yoke, and yet its defense was a river, not the ocean. With us, fatherland, wives, parents are the motives to war. With them, only greed and profligacy. They will surely fly, as did the now defied Julius, if once we emulate the value of our sires. Let us not be panic-stricken at the result of one or two engagements. The miserable have more fury and greater resolution. Now even the gods are beginning to pity us, for they are keeping away the Roman general, and detaining his army far from us in another island. We have already taken the hardest step. We are deliberating. And indeed, in all such designs, to dare is less perilous 
than to be detected. Rousing each other by this and like language, under the leadership of Boudica, a woman of kingly descent, for they admit no distinction of sex in their royal successions, they all rose in arms. They fell upon our troops, which were scattered on garrison duty, stormed the forts, and burst into the colony itself, the headquarters, as they thought, of tyranny. In their rage and their triumph they spared no variety of a barbarian's cruelty. Had not Paulinus, on hearing of the outbreak in the province, rendered prompt succour, Britain would have been lost. By one successful engagement he brought it back to its former obedience, though many, troubled by the conscious guilt of rebellion, and by particular dread of the legate, still clung to their arms. Excellent as he was in other respects, his policy to the conquered was arrogant, and exhibited the cruelty of one who was avenging private wrongs. Accordingly, Petronius Terpilianus was sent out to initiate a milder rule. A stranger to the enemy's misdeeds, and so more accessible to their penitence, he put an end to all troubles, and, attempting nothing more, handed the province over to Trebellius Maximus. Trebellius, who was somewhat indolent, and never ventured on a campaign, controlled the province by a certain courtesy in his administration. Even the barbarians now learned to excuse many attractive vices, and the occurrence of the civil war gave a good pretext for inaction. But we were sorely troubled with mutiny, as troops habituated to service grew demoralized by idleness. Trebellius, who had escaped the soldier's fury by flying and hiding himself, governed henceforth on sufferance, a disgraced and humbled man. It was a kind of bargain. The soldiers had their license, the general had his life, and so the mutiny cost no bloodshed. Nor did Vadius Bolanus, during the continuance of the civil wars, trouble Britain with discipline. There was the same inaction with respect to the enemy, and similar unruliness in the camp. Only Bolanus, an upright man, whom no misdeeds made odious, had secured affection in default of the power of control. When, however, Vespasian had restored to unity Britain, as well as the rest of the world, in the presence of the great generals and renowned armies, the enemy's hopes were crushed. They were at once panic-stricken by the attack of Petilius Cerealis on the state of the Brigantes, said to be the most prosperous in the entire province. There were many battles, some by no means bloodless, and his conquests, or at least his wars, embraced a large part of the territory of the Brigantes. Indeed, he would have altogether thrown into the shade the activity and renown of any other successor, but Julius Frontus was equal to the burden, a great man as far as greatness was then possible, who subdued by his arms the powerful and warlike tribe of the Silures, surmounting the difficulties of the country as well as the valour of the enemy. Such was the state of Britain, and such were the vicissitudes of the war, which Agricola found on his crossing over, about midsummer. Our soldiers made it a pretext for carelessness, as if all fighting was over, 
and the enemy were biding their time. The Ordovices, shortly before Agricola's arrival, had destroyed nearly the whole of a squadron of allied cavalry quartered in their territory. Such a beginning raised the hopes of the country, and all who wished for war approved the precedent, and anxiously watched the temper of the new governor. Meanwhile, Agricola, though summer was past, and the detachments were scattered throughout the province, though the soldiers' confident anticipation of inaction for that year would be a source of delay and difficulty in beginning a campaign, and most advisers thought it best simply to watch all weak points, resolved to face the peril. He collected a force of veterans and a small body of auxiliaries. Then, as the Ordovices would not venture to descend into the plain, he put himself in front of the ranks to inspire all with the same courage against a common danger, and led his troops up a hill. The tribe was all but exterminated. Well aware that he must follow up the prestige of his arms, and that in proportion to his first success would be the terror of the other tribes, he formed the design of subjugating the island of Mona, from the occupation of which Paulinus had been recalled, as I have already related, by the rebellion of the entire province. But, as his plans were not matured, he had no fleet. The skill and resolution of the general accomplished the passage. With some picked men of the auxiliaries, disencumbered of all baggage, who knew the shallows and had that national experience in swimming which enables the Britons to take care not only of themselves, but of their arms and horses, he delivered so unexpected an attack that the astonished enemy, who were looking for a fleet, a naval armament, and an assault by sea, thought that to such assailants nothing could be formidable or invincible. And so, peace having been sued for, and the island given up, Agricola became great and famous, as one who, when entering on his province, a time which others spend in vain display in a round of ceremonies, chose rather toil and danger. Nor did he use his success for self-glorification, or apply the name of campaigns and victories to the repression of a conquered people. He did not even describe his achievements in a laureled letter. Yet by thus disguising his renown he really increased it, for men inferred the grandeur of his aspirations from his silence about services so great. Next, with thorough insight into the feelings of his province, and taught also by the experience of others that little is gained by conquest if followed by oppression, he determined to root out the causes of war. Beginning first with himself and his dependents, he kept his household under restraint, a thing as hard to many as ruling a province. He transacted no public business through freedmen or slaves, no private leanings, no recommendations of entreaties of friends moved him in the selection of centurions and soldiers, but it was ever the best men whom he thought most trustworthy. He knew everything, but did not always act on his knowledge. Trifling errors he treated with leniency, serious offenses with severity. Nor was it always punishment, but far often penitence, which satisfied him. He preferred to give office and power to men who would not transgress, rather than have to condemn a transgressor. 
he lightened the exaction of corn and tribute by an equal distribution of the burden, while he got rid of those contrivances for gain which were more intolerable than the tribute itself. Hitherto, the people had been compelled to endure the farce of waiting by the closed granary, and of purchasing corn unnecessarily, and raising it to a fictitious price. Difficult by-roads and distant places were fixed for them, so that states with a winter camp close to them had to carry corn to remote and inaccessible parts of the country, until what was within the reach of all became a source of profit to the few. Agricola, by the repression of these abuses in his very first year in office, restored to peace its good name, when, from either the indifference or the harshness of his predecessors, it had come to be as much dreaded as war. When, however, summer came, assembling his forces, he continually showed himself in the ranks, praised good discipline, and kept the stragglers in order. He would himself choose the position of the camp, himself explore the estuaries and forests. Meanwhile, he would allow the enemy no rest, laying waste his territory with sudden incursions, and, having sufficiently alarmed him, would then by forbearance display the allurements of peace. In consequence, many states, which up to that time had been independent, gave hostages, and laid aside their animosities. Garrisons and forts were established among them, with a skill and diligence with which no newly acquired part of Britain had before been treated. The following winter passed without disturbance, and was employed in salutary measures. For, to accustom to rest and repose through the charms of luxury a population scattered and barbarous, and therefore inclined to war, Agricola gave private encouragement and public aid to the building of temples, courts of justice, and dwelling-houses, praising the energetic and reproving the indolent. Thus an honorable rivalry took the place of compulsion. He likewise provided a liberal education for the sons of the chiefs, and showed such a preference for the natural powers of the Britons over the industry of the Gauls, that they who lately disdained the tongue of Rome now coveted its eloquence. Hence, too, a liking sprang up for our style of dress, and the toga became fashionable. Step by step they were led to things which disposed to vice, the lounge, the bath, the elegant banquet. All this, in their ignorance, they called civilization, when it was but a part of their servitude. The third year of his campaigns opened up new tribes, our ravages on the native population being carried as far as the Toss, an estuary so-called. This struck such terror into the enemy that he did not dare to attack our army, harassed though it was by violent storms, and there was even time for the erection of forts. It was noted by experienced officers that no general had ever shown more judgment in choosing suitable positions and that not a single ford established by Agricola was either stormed by the enemy or abandoned by capitulation or flight. Sorties were continually being made, for these positions were secured from protracted siege by a year's supply. So winter brought with it no alarms, and each garrison could hold its own, as the baffled and despairing enemy, who had been accustomed often to repair his summer losses by winter successes, 
found himself repelled alike both in summer and winter. Never did Agricola, in a greedy spirit, appropriate the achievements of others. The centurion and the prefect both found in him an impartial witness of their every action. Some persons used to say that he was too harsh in his reproofs, and that he was as severe to the bad as he was gentle to the good. But his displeasure left nothing behind it. Reserve and silence in him were not to be dreaded. He thought it better to show anger than to cherish hatred. End of Part 2